the most fucked up part of it though is they have like a native uh, assistant or like helper at the house and he's like hunched over and he's speaking like a caveman the whole time and his face is like caked with an obscene prosthetic that like looks so thick and I was like good god like who is this actor and I looked it up and it's fucking Alfalfa from The Little Rascals. Oh, whoa. Oh, and he's just like shuffling horrible. around and grunting in his impression of like the Native Americans. It's Well, they to be brutal. fair to the narrative of the story, they do say that his character, like Joe Sam or whatever his name is, uh, is like maybe over 100 years old. <laughs> They do suggest that at one point. They're like, Lord knows how, how old this guy is. And like, he's played by a 23-year-old ex-little rascal. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah, totally crazy. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined here, as always, with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with picking a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts are challenged to find films in response to that theme. And then we put them together side by side and hash it out over their virtues and deficiencies. So it was my turn this week to select the theme, and when I had selected the theme, I had recently come down from another successful season at the Chicago International Film Festival, a place I've worked for uh, many number of years. And whenever we put on one of these events, um, there is this huge come down at the end because it's a high intensity performance, if you will, of the uh, team, the operations team. It feels as if we are putting on a performance ourselves as we're figuring out the logistics of making an event run smoothly for the public eye. And so I task the boys then with finding films that are about putting on a production and what they brought me <laughs> are two very intense productions, uh, to, to say the least, and um, they both uh, very successfully scratched uh, the itch of me wanting to feel the like dread and drama of putting on a live event of sorts. Both of these tortured and beautiful and fascinating in their own ways. So let's start with the earliest film of the two. Andy, tell us about what you brought. When... You gave me the prompt. Uh, this was a film that had popped into my head and I was reluctant to pick it because I thought it was too obvious a choice, but was very pleasantly surprised to discover that neither of you had seen it. So uh, that totally cemented it for me. And I chose what I think is, is one of the greatest uh, cinematic renditions of a play I've ever seen. And that is a film from 1967, directed by Peter Brook from uh, the stage show of the same name. And that is 
Peter Weiss's play. <laughs> uh, the title of which, the full title, is The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade, more colloquially known as Marat Saad. So this was a play, as I mentioned, um, a stage show by Peter Weiss that was quite a a sensation when it first premiered um, in in Germany, and then uh, eventually Peter Brook um, brought it to life in England with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the performers of the RSC. And then from there it went to Broadway where it became a further sensation going on to win the Tony Award for Best Play. Then after that, Peter Brook took it from stage to screen with this adaptation. And as far as the the subject, well, I kind of feel like the plot, it's, it's all right there in the title. <laughs> so this is the filmic version of a play within a play. So there is a play being performed by the inmates of Charenton under the Marquis de Sade's guidance or perhaps manipulation, uh, depending, I think, on how you want to view the events that unfold. And it's really just that. It's a, it's an impassioned vision of the assassination of uh, Jean-Paul Marat, who was a friend of the Marquis de Sade's during the French Revolution. And uh, the Marquis de Sade's show that he puts on his production is is all the inmates of, of Charenton that he was, he was interned with. So you have a bunch of different uh, people suffering from a bunch of different mental disorders who are playing, uh, you know, various parts, uh, a screaming mob, um, a sort of Greek, or I guess you could say French chorus, who sing along and comment on the events. And then, of course, Jean-Paul Marat, played by Ian Richardson, and uh, Charlotte Corday, the assassin of Marat, is played brilliantly by Glenda Jackson. And all of this... Uh, being, you know, all the strings being pulled by Patrick McGee, who plays the Marquis, and I think, in my view, the best performance of his career, and I, I quite like him. I think he's a really, really, really talented actor. So that's the film. It's insane. <laughs> in a lot of respects, there's a lot of different layers going on. Uh, the the play is about the French Revolution, but it's also about the modern world. It's also about the times in which we live. Uh, it's quite a quite a fun, complex, and I think wild, wild vision of a production uh, gone mad. It certainly is a production that has gone mad, and it uh, reminded me in that sense of many of the most maddening moments of um, <laughs> certain events that I've uh, put on with the festival. It does sort of make you feel like a lunatic at times, um, but it was it's an extremely complex film and one that I actually feel like a lot was unlocked for me once I watched the other film in this double feature in terms of like how to sort of process and understand the intense uh, amount of information that is sort of thrown at us in Marasad. So Marsh, tell us a little bit about what you brought. Well, when you first brought up the topic, this was the first thing that popped into my head because it's a film that I saw for the first time only a few months ago. So it was sort of fresh in my head and I thought, 
oh my God, putting on a production. This is a film about putting on a production, and uh, it's a very strange production as well. Um, So the film I chose is I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians from 2018. This is a Romanian film written and directed by Radu Judah. And I, unfortunately, haven't seen any of his either films, so I can't really speak to that. But I did learn that he was an assistant director for Costa Gavras on his film Amen. And he also worked on The Death of Mr. Lazarescu. So he's, you know, you could call him part of the Romanian New Wave or the long tail of the Romanian New Wave. And this film is about Mariana, who is a young artist and director uh, of sorts who is putting on a historical reenactment of the 1941 Odessa massacre that happened at the beginning of World War II. And so the film follows her trials and tribulations as she prepares this production from selecting the costumes to casting the three different armies represented in the reenactment to her ongoing battles with potential censorship at the hands of the local government who is funding the uh, public display of art that is going to be put on at the end of this film. And all in all, it's a it's a very heady, very talky, very funny, just rich film, overstuffed like Murad Saad <laughs> with information and details and arguments and characters and characters (laughs) i mean it's just this layered tapestry as we meet you know all these people involved in this kind of massive production uh and the problems and grievances that it is causing by its uh, act of creation and i do think yeah it was kind of remarkable how much these films had in common in so many ways (laughs) yeah well yeah thank you both for for bringing um of these films and I, I agree there there is um, a surprising amount of things that they they have in common from films that um, at least at first glance you sort of wouldn't typically sort of associate with each other and I think that the, the key one and the one that unlocked a lot of things about Murad Saad for me is the relationship between a figure who is either censoring or trying to get rid of any sense of subversive attitudes or beliefs or political subtext. Yeah, exactly. Any political subtext. And so in Marasad, we have the director of the institution who is sitting in the same room as all of the inmates who are performing the show and Saad. And because there are bars set up that are then protecting the audience who is watching the show, they're watching from the dark. Um, And then as in uh, Barbarians, we have this figure who is like working for the deputy mayor in some capacity who is also trying to take her to task, the the director of this production, for all of her own sort of subversive, uh, as he reads it, subversive beliefs and attitudes that she's like trying to inject into her show while she is sort of just matter of factly saying, oh, it's this is more just an opportunity to reflect on objective truths. And it's funny how 
both of those figures work in each film. With Marat Saad, we have someone who is sort of just hopping up whenever he hears something that like doesn't, you know, fit the bill or feels like it's out of place and he feels like he like kind of energetically is interrupting and trying to, you know, Put, put his foot down. While in Barbarians, it's much more discursive uh, between the two of them. There are these extended conversations about what's worthwhile doing in the show and like the meanings behind that. Both of the productions are about the past, but using the past to, you know, reach the future. And it, it struck me off of, you know, our conversation last week where you were talking about Costa Gavras and Costa Gavras saying, I don't make historical films because all this shit's still going on or whatever, right? That these films are actually about today. It's not about the past. It's about, it's about today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, both of these films are also, I think, trying to, or the productions within the films, uh, achieve the same end. Uh, in the case of, you know, Saad and his reenactment of the assassination of, of Jean-Paul Marat, he's talking about, you know, France in 1808, uh, when, when the, you know, full Napoleon. Yes. Yeah. Where, where, you know, the revolution is over and now <laughs> Napoleon's here. And so he's sort of measuring the revolution against, you know, modern quote, modern day France. Um, and in, in our similar way, you know, Mariana is trying to to sort of resurrect the past to talk about the present and, and present attitudes, I think, towards war, militarism, and nationalism in, in general, you know? So I think, yeah, that right off the bat, Ryan, as you're saying, like that's that's to me like the, the sort of central core of of the the productions in each that is controversial for in the case of, you know, Marassad Kumier, the director of the asylum, who is trying to use this production to say, look how far we've come. Look at how modern we are. Look at how, you know, sophisticated our views on mental health. And, and you know, the mm -hmm. revolution was this thing that we went through and it made us great. You know, the France that we have today is great because of the revolution and sort of trying to reclaim ownership of what happened to explain why we now have, you know... <laughs> Emperor Napoleon from this, you know, this popular revolution. We now have an emperor. And yeah, in, in, in the case of, you know, Romania, it's this very, this troubling question of, of, of identity, you know, in terms of were we fascist? Are we still fascist? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think the film, both films and, and the plays within the films are about, history and memory and yeah like they're both i think anti-nationalist uh kind of sentiments being expressed like by the filmmakers not even just the you know the stuff within but also maybe that as well so yeah it's interesting right because there's a lot of disagreement about history and memory and, and, and that kind of stuff in both films. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like the meat and potatoes of what everyone's talking about. Uh, and I, I also thought, again, it's like, as you pointed out, Andy, like the connection of, right, trying to address the present, you know, Murat Saad feels like directed at the 1960s, like so explicitly, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's like such a 60s thing. You can feel it, the urgency, the anger, you know, and the direct address. And both films deal in Brechtian techniques of breaking the fourth wall, direct addressing the quote-unquote audience, 
and in, in both films, there's a real audience in the film, but the there's also the filmic audience that's being addressed. So, uh, yeah, I don't so think, many layers. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubts as to yeah, kind of like the in, the intentions I think behind these films having kind of similar uh, you know motivations or, or philosophies approaching them. And yet again, you know what what also struck me on that on that level in watching Morassad again was how relevant the conversations still are. Like, even though this is a film clearly with a mindset of, you know, the mid-60s, sort of post-war, post-World War II, you know, uh, revivification of Europe and, and the, you know, the modern world and all this stuff, like, it's, it's conversations that are, are happening uh, once again today about, you know, the difference between perhaps liberalism and, and truly progressive ideas and, you know, status quo in relation to politics uh, and also war and nationalism and, and these kinds of things, you know. For me, like, once again, like, more relevant and felt like less even like a pure relic of the past, there was so much uh, immediacy, I felt, in, in what I was experiencing. I agree, and I think a lot of that has to do with the visual style of the film as well. Um, it certainly doesn't look like your typical period piece. I mean, I think it would probably be a good idea to like set the stage for Marat Saad so we can give like listeners an idea, if they haven't seen it, of like what this room looks like and how the camera moves in it. Because that, I think, specifically that contemporary sensibility you were talking about, a lot of that comes through the way the camera is used in this film, because it is so flamboyant and it's like fast and it's it's so dynamic um, and typically I really struggle with films that are just adaptations of plays because sometimes they don't feel there's like they're straining to be cinematic they're trying to break out of the single location or the few locations they're trapped in and this film succeeds in that so wonderfully even it is bound in this one room but they managed to find a new way to shoot the room um with like every single moment beat for beat because yeah the camera's just moving up and down side to side spinning and the focus is constantly changing i think that's another thing that really adds depth to this room and the space itself isn't very big one of the walls is the bars that are protecting the viewers of the play from the inmates of this hospital the room is described um or referred to by the director of the asylum, Cumier, as the bathhouse. And so in the center of the room, you know, on a certain level, if you if you take a step back from it, it's, it's kind of arranged like a sauna. Uh, yeah. You know, you have the various benches along the side and a lot of tile and everything. But in the center of the room, there's this sort of circular area where there's a bunch of grates, wooden grates that can be removed and they have these these indentations in the floor and those are like the the quote baths. So those would be filled up with water, you know, if someone were to to sort of sit in that and, and take a bath. Right. Um and that's also why they have the grates above them and stuff, people, you know, dumping buckets of water over each other's heads or or as Cumier <laughs> describes it, uh hydrotherapy, which, you know, we get a glimpse of in there, which is literally yeah. just sort of like holding a patient down and dumping buckets of cold water on them. So so yeah, it's a it's a it's sort of a picture of sauna if you haven't seen the film. Uh and I think that's a pretty good representation of like what the space uh, looks like what it mm -hmm. what it's how it's conceived. It reminded me of 
Ken Russell's The Devils, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of like tiled bathroom kind of feel to it. Yeah. Very stark, very, very like monochromatic. And of course, it's perfect because uh, Mara is spending, you know, the whole the whole play in a bathtub. Yes. Right. <laughs> he was at, as he was at that time, you know, uh, bound to a bathtub because of his horrific skin disease that he may or may not have gotten from hiding in the sewers during the French Revolution. <laughs> and yeah, we are we are Cumier sort of gives us the framing of the the play and introduces us to the to the you know the 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 conceit, I guess you will, of of what's mm-hmm. what's about to take place, and and so we then get also introduced to the to the performers, to those who are going to be to be taking part in the play. And, and again, they are, they are all inmates of this, this asylum. And for those who don't know, I mean, this was something that they actually did. So while the Marquis de Sade was interned in interred, interred, interned, which one interned, interred. He was an intern. Inter- yeah. So while he, yeah, while he, while he was a guest of the the Charenton Asylum for basically the last thirteen years of his life, uh, the 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 director did try to sort of in a certain on a certain level capitalize on his fame and allowed the Marquis de Sade to put on productions, like actually did put on productions at this this asylum and he did use inmates as performers so we're introduced to some of those who are going to take part in the play as marsh uh, pointed out we we have marat played by ian richardson who is described by this this herald character this uh this mc like figure as a, a paranoic so we have a a, a paranoic playing uh Mara. Uh, we are also introduced to Glenda Jackson, uh, who plays Charlotte Corday, the assassin of Mara. And she is described as a patient suffering from both sleeping sickness and melancholia. And so there's this kind of amusing thing where they're 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 often having to like kick her awake to get up and start performing her lines <laughs> because she just keeps you know, sort of curling up and going to sleep. And then we are also introduced to the director, played by, as I mentioned, Patrick McGee, the Marquis de Sade, in a very intense close-up. Like, his introduction is this just amazing uh, close-up of his face where he is just staring directly into the camera while, you know, we're we're getting... um, we're getting all of his uh, his sort of brief bio from this Herald figure. Now meet this gentleman from high society who under the lurid star of notoriety came to live with us just five years ago. It's to his genius that we owe this show, the former Marquis Monsieur de Sade, whose books were banned, his essays barred, while he's been prosecuted and reviled, thrown into jail and for some years exiled. And from there, the, the play gets underway. Uh, and I, I agree, Ryan, I did feel going back to it this time, you know, I really, really was like, I think the, li- the, the line that I wrote in my notes was delirious camera work, um, yeah. because it is a rather small space, which in some instances is sort of helped by the use of these like very wide angle lenses that kind of make the space even bend and, and sort of seem even it seems that much more deep and and wide you are you you are thrust into that room and you are being spun around in a way that that contributes i think uh almost immediately to your to your sense of 
um, unease and discomfort in this yeah. moment. There's also like a wall that is just these huge blown out windows that feel like this void in, you know, just like one end of the room that you are like constantly in fear of being sucked into. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also helps to sort of expand the space a bit and give it like a little extra depth. What was really interesting to me, I think one of the most interesting things was just watching them do the sort of meta play stuff within the space. Like that's a very sort of fascinating element and sonic element of the film, like how the film sounds, there's all this, you know, clamoring and clanking and this kind of like rhythmic stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's like, they're using the grates and like all these objects to, yeah, create these kind of like sonic, you know, sort of passages you know, we don't see the the preparation of the production, but we see the production and we see within the production, yeah, them like putting up sheets and like changing the lighting and like, you know, creating that fiction like on the fly or whatever, which again is just sort of, you know, happening all around you while everyone's, yeah, uh, either singing or delivering, you know, monologues of about politics or yeah. whatever. Peter Weiss has talked about his sort of some of his influences, and I think they're they're pretty obvious, you know, once you really dive into it. I think we've already sort of mentioned it, the uh, similarities to sort of like Brecht and and mm-hmm. a very a very similar approach to that kind of like staging and and metatextual approach to performance. Um, so it's, it's like, it's just, just, just fully on display, like from the get go. And I think it is part of the joy of, of watching it unfold because I mean, you can imagine being in a theater and seeing this take place and it is, it is, um, so, so stunning to sort of see all these performers like in a film that, that really do capture the spirit of like a live show very well. I mean, this really does feel like you're, you are in that audience and also in the room, I guess, like (laughs) Cumier, but like you are watching a performance, you know? You know, interestingly, I saw J-Ro shit talk it because he thinks it's too different from the stage play. And that I think, (laughs) I think for, I would imagine, look, I, I haven't seen the play, so I don't know, but obviously because of the way the film is, you can imagine the play is even more distanced, right? Because you're seeing it all at once. Whereas the film, as you're saying, the film is immersive. It is kind of anti-theatrical in how close up you are, right? You know, so I think it's interesting that there is like, they took that approach to like throw you in the room, not even treat you like you're the audience at a theater, but like, you're an audience in the asylum, yeah. more like, you know. Or, and I think, again, not to bury the leader, get too far ahead of ourselves, that that we are also in the asylum. We're, we're inmates as well. Oh, shit. You know? Really? Like, yeah, well, you know what I mean? Like, I think, again, that's sort of the, the, yeah, the, hell the yeah, point. Of course, you yeah. know, that, yeah, we aren't necessarily in that audience. Like, we are also... We're in the room with them. Yeah, we're stumbling around with everybody else. Yeah, know? yeah. If it's ever outside of the room, it's usually because different figures are, like, sticking their faces right up against the bars <laughs> and just, like, peering at us in the darkness. Um, I was wondering, who are the two women that are in the room with the director of the hospital? That's his wife and daughter. Okay. 
That's his wife and daughter. So was anything ever said explicitly as to why he decided to have them in the room with him? Was it to like a gesture of confidence in how much control he had? Yes. Over yes. The... Look at our great liberal institution. Right. You know, like that kind of thing. I mean, again, almost from the get go, this thing is 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 teetering off the rails, you know, like it's a, it's very much an experiment for, for Kumye. We get the, the idea here and, and, uh, you know, very quickly he interrupts the show because everyone in there is getting whipped up into a frenzy in, in basically the opening number of the show. came and went and unrest was replaced by discontent who controls the markets who locked up the galleries who got the loot from the palaces who sits tight on the estates that were going to be divided between the poor who keeps us prisoner who locks us in we're all normal and we want our freedom and Kumier sort of leaps up, you know, uh, Monsieur Desaad, like everyone's kind of getting really worked up here. Like, are we going to, are we going to be able to finish the show? Like, and, and to, to your point though, about like, you know, his wife and daughter who are with him, there are points where both of them try to leave. Yes. Uh, they both like go to the door to be like, I've had enough, like I'm getting out. And he grabs them and like pulls them back to their seats. And it's, you know, never explicitly said, but, you know, I think Marsh, it seems like we both interpreted it in the same way that he's like, it's very important for everyone that's watching that we're in this room so that they see, you know, we're not afraid. This is modern science and medicine and and yes they may get a little out of control but nothing that we can't ourselves handle i love that first interruption from the director because that's when i i kind of like finally figured out exactly how the dynamic was working um or at least started to get a grasp on it when he does say i think the first thing he says is you can't call this education as you said andy that they're the, the patients are getting overexcited. Mm-hmm. He's like, we, you know, this needs to be tempered. This needs to be more relaxed. Like, we have to show that we have, like, a grip on all of this. And, yeah, he's, like, constantly calling Saad to task for the way that everyone else is is behaving. Because they are certainly, I mean, yeah, they are getting overexcited. I, I guess I would, like, point out, too, just as, like, a personal experience watching the film. How do you guys feel about just these like British actors just like parading around as like driveling, like drooling people with all these different mental disorders. I find that I've like come to really just like struggle, like watching that. Like I found it just exhausting watching these people like just like, you know, shuffle about pretending to be people with like severe mental disorders. Um, There's something like extremely off-putting about that to me um, that feels like dated in a certain way. Yeah, yeah I would get, never could imagine seeing this show now put on in that same feverish way without like some other distancing effect added in. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly like it's a different time and I think a very mm-hmm. different approach to things like mental illness and, you know... In that sense, yeah, it did. It did dawn on me while I was watching it that it's sort of like, 
man, you'd take a lot of fucking flack for making something like that today. Yeah, but it's like so overstylized. Like it's right. so exaggerated that I think any claim to like being, you know, representative of reality, like it's sort of missing the point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I get I get what you're saying, Ryan, but it's also yeah, like, like I'm not calling it to task for not being <laughs> realistic. I just think there's something kind of mocking and like from my perspective, I don't feel that it's too it's too mocking of of most of the patients in terms of uh-huh. of their illnesses. Um, you know, any more so than something like what like one flew over the cuckoo's nest is also sure. sort of trying to do. Um, but again, I think I'm also with Marsh in the, in the sense that, you know, this is also, it's the Royal Shakespeare company, right? right. So <laughs> it's the Royal Shakespeare company doing a, a Brechtian play that's also influenced by Artaud's <laughs> theater of cruelty. So it's, it's, it's not about like, let's try to embody like a realistic, you know, portrayal of these things. It, it, it is meant to be, I think more even like archetypal in, in its depiction of, of insanity or mental illness. And yet in spite of that, I think some of them are very, they are quite like complex. Like they put on a great like, fucking show as, <laughs> as inmates, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I want to point out to Ryan that this film came out the same year as a, another fantastic film with the patients of a mental institution performing Frederick Wiseman's titty cut follies. Correct. So 1967 is the great year for this kind of thing. We have the, the nonfiction and the fiction version of the inmates running the asylum for a creative (laughs) endeavor. Yeah. And quite frankly, I mean, the point is also established very early on that a lot of these people, um, especially in in what they're saying, the political views that they're espousing, uh, sound a whole lot more sane to me (laughs) than the world outside of the asylum, right? Yes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you have this one character, Marsh and I were talking about this off off air, and I I said to Marsh, I'm like, I guarantee we both probably have the same favorite character of of the show. And it is this former priest uh, character who is, is, you know, playing one of Marat's trusted uh, allies. And as he's introduced to us, we're, we're told by the Herald, the MC of the show that he is the most radical. Like his, his progressive views are too radical. They're so dangerous. In fact, that Cumier had almost all of his lines cut from the production and the character, like as he's being introduced to us, he starts to try to speak. And the first thing he's trying to spit out is I accuse and Cumier immediately is like, up, 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 like, no, none of that. And then he just kind of like hisses, you know, <laughs> But he is this like, I mean, he is, I think the only one that's in a straitjacket, like restrained for pretty much the whole show. Right. And he is this guy that just constantly is sort of like leaping up through the show and and just spitting like fire, you know, about how the world is inherently corrupt and nationalism is poisoning us all and war is going to be the ultimate death of mankind. And, and every time he gets like, you know, really going, then Cumier is like, stop it, you know, and they're like, they at one point just knock him out, you know. So that guy right there, who is just this like this this frothing at the mouth, uh, impassioned sort of you know uh, cleric of doom, I guess you could say, <laughs> is is for me like the most sane character. Like the stuff that he's saying is like the most honest and well reasoned views. We demand the opening of the granaries to feed the poor. 
We demand the public ownership of workshops and factories. We demand the conversion of the churches into schools, so that now at least something useful may be taught in them. We demand that everyone should do all he can to put an end to war. This damned war which is fought for the benefit of profiteers and leads only to more wars. We demand that the people who started the war should pay the cost of it once and for all. Yeah, I love the the first interjection, you know, because it, it obviously sets up, you know, like the tension, not just of, you know, the play, but yeah, this like extra level of Comier being in the room. And that's when, you know, again, the comparison between these films beca- became so, you know, obvious, right? Because he, he interjects, he says, okay, hold on, you know, you're getting too excited, you're recounting the French Revolution, right? They're sort of like setting the stage and getting really like stoked. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, oh, hold on. We should take an objective view of past grievances, <laughs> right? Yeah. And again, it's because he represents the status quo, the Napoleonic Empire, right? For, you know, classic guy in power. We should be objective about this, right? Uh, and, and he's like, says just like the guy in, in Barbarians, he says, you know, the true history is the great men that made France, mm-hmm. not the, the troublesome aspects, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same conversation, right? Like, why are you doing this play uh, about this when you could be doing it about that, you sure. know? You could mm-hmm. be, this could be a great patriotic, heroic thing. Why are you doing it about this bloody to the terror, you know, morale? Like, come on, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And then anytime Saad is approached with any of these criticisms, he just sort of glumly stares into the camera and says, man has given false importance to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the goth boy in yeah. the corner. Yeah. <laughs> he is, yeah, he's the, the, the goth boy. It's so funny. Uh, his performance is so good when it comes to like all of those moments when he's like given criticism for the way everyone's like behaving or the content of the production and the way he just kind of like shuffles around and it's just it's amazing what he does with his face where it feels like he's got like a shit-eating grin but he's never grinning mm-hmm. you know like he's just like got this smirk that's like buried beneath his like somber nihilistic attitude mm-hmm. that, that's i think the what i found to be like the greatest achievement of his performance was communicating to us how much fun he was actually having oh yeah. um putting on this show while to all intents and purposes like looking at him you would never have, have thought that for him you know the Marquis de Sade, like the the storminess, the passions, the fire, the 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 twisted views, whatever you want to call them, like they're all embedded deep inside of him. You know, in his in his heart, in his mind, is in his imagination. He's internalizing so much of his performance here. And well, then even then, there's all this confusion. I mean, it's constantly treading the line of, you know, I was wondering when people were speaking i'm like wait is this a part of his production like how much of this is ad lib when sod himself was even speaking i couldn't tell always whether he was just responding to criticisms or the things happening around him or if he was like 
planning on having himself be a part of the show at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really skillfully kind of weaves in that reality um, and blurs all those lines. So we're yeah. like the, the stability is always called into question mm-hmm. uh, and to this sort of like powder keg of a production. You never know necessarily like what's been scripted, what's been planned and like when there is actual danger uh, afoot. Well, you know, the moments I knew were scripted are, of course, uh, Saad's auteur moments throughout the play itself, which are specifically things like uh, him being whipped by a woman's hair mm. while he tells you about his like life philosophy or whatever in this like yeah self-flagellating scene where he like takes off his shirt uh, and gets down in front of everyone and then is just, yeah, you know doing the doing his dirty thing in front of everyone oh it's so amazing. good yeah she's like waving her head back and forth so her hair is whipping his shoulders and then all the other inmates are lined up behind him and then like creating the sound design for the scene yeah. uh, very effectively too at first i saw in the revolution a chance for a tremendous outburst of revenge an orgy greater than all my dreams <laughs> But then I saw, when I sat in the courtroom myself, not as I had been before a prisoner, but as a judge, I saw that I could not bring myself to give the victim to the hangman. I did everything I could to release him or to let him escape. I saw that I was not capable of murder, though murder had been the sole proof of my existence. And now... And just even in the staging of that, right? Like, for the Marquis de Sade, you know, blending pleasure and pain and sensations like all of it in that moment where it is like it is unsettling and yet intensely erotic as well you know like so yeah marcia right like yeah that that is 100 you know part of the part of the show but but as the show unfolds it, it also becomes clear that this this play despite what kumier thinks it is uh, I believe that that what we're really seeing here is Saad's attempt to have a conversation with his former friend Marah, and and have this very passionate debate. That that really the heart of the the, the show are these these conversations between Saad and Marah and their different approaches to the revolution, their, their different approaches to humanity, to man, to what's inside of all of us. And I, I think that it's, it, it shows his, his deep respect in spite of his disagreements with Marat. Like, I think he really cares for, for his friends so much that, you know, he allows them to, to have this, this, this conversation after death, you know, from beyond the grave, the, the Marquis de Sade expressing his view of, you know, a very sort of nihilistic view that, mm-hmm. you know, revolutions are doomed to fail because we're never truly free. We cannot ever be truly free. We are ourselves imprisoned, whether in an, an asylum or in a, in a, in a nation state. Um, whereas Marais, this, this voice that, that, that truly believes in, you know, the revolution. And, and so they have this like debate throughout. And I think, again, that's, that's part of the show as well, but the way it's staged, like, 
like you said, it's all blurred and and it's intentionally blurred because I think for Saad, like anyone working in a in a society or in a in a in a in a country or a, you know a culture that has censorship and heavy censorship, like you have to figure out ways to get around the censors. You know, you've got to figure out ways to to work through the censors. Again, another parallel between both of these films is is how mm-hmm. the directors are are trying to get their message across in spite of the fact that there are all these people around the production just sort of looking exactly, you know, precisely for that kind of material. Like that's what they want to cut. So I think, again, that's, that's the, the brilliance of his, of his production here is, is that Cumier himself can't figure out what's part of the show and what isn't part of the right. show and how much Saad intended for Cumier to be part of the show, whether Cumier knew it or not. You know, that like Cumier's voice constantly interrupting with, well, you know, you're being kind of hard on the church, but, you know, the church does a lot of good as well. You know, there's clothing drives, you know, stuff like that, right? <laughs> like he's this other view that, yeah. that's supposed to kind of cut in, you know, and as the film unfolds, you know, it becomes more and more clear in my view that, that yeah, Cumier is, 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 a, is a character that was also written by the Marquis de Sade, but right. Right. he has no right. idea. the Emperor's Chorus, you know? Yeah. You've got the sans-culottes on the one hand, like they're all dressed up like clowns of the revolution, and then you've got him to step in and go, oh my God, pacifism? You better shut this thing down, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, yeah. this is this is the age of Napoleon. Like, he tears up the whole script when, yeah, I think it's the, the ex-priest who's like, no war, you yeah. know, like going off about war profiteering. Uh-huh. And he, he shuts that down yes. real quick. I yeah. think it, it struck me too in, in a really interesting way how this, this play, this thing that was written in the early 60s, the way that it kind of predicts the rise of neoliberalism, like, I mean, which, which is sort of starting at that time, you know, but again, why this film feels so relevant to me today, you know, is that where Cumier stands up when they're, when they're talking about, you know, the revolution and, and the failure of the revolution and we've allowed the revolution to backslide into basically like fascist dictatorship or whatever. And Cumier stands up and he's like, now, wait a second, we're all part of the revolution. And he says, we're all revolutionaries now, you know, like in this empire. Right. And it's like, again, this like idea of like predicting neoliberalism that it got so twisted around that, you know, fast forward to today where we have fucking people talking about how Joe Biden's like the most progressive fucking president we've ever had. And it's like, (laughs) what are you talking about? You know, like this is, this is totally again, like the inmates running the asylum in a weird way, you know? Well, you know what Saad said, uh, man is a destroyer. Uh, And I think, you know, that's also like what a part of you guys were, you guys were talking about of like, what are his actual designs of the play? I think, his full i think it's like an attempt for him to prove his philosophy right he knows or thinks that everything trends toward chaos and destruction so let's see what happens mm-hmm. you know and and of course it, it ultimately veers in that direction so i think you know obviously he c- couldn't plan that stuff but the chaos is intentional you know? yeah i i agree yeah i mean i love how you would refer to it as sod's um auteur moments where yeah. he does give those direct addresses <laughs> and speaks on the quality of man he is like bemoaning all these things but yes i do think as a part of the design is these like open 
entry points for chaos for that like you know kind of carnival quality that sod is like hoping will happen so that these barriers can be broken down and everything else can be called into question and i know that it is that specific quality which is the reason that this film is so compelling but throughout i just kept wishing i was like i would love to see another version of this that is just the rehearsal for the event and watching (laughs) sod design the production and then specifically working with all of these inmates i would have loved to have seen him in rehearsals directing them yeah i think i think that's uh, a movie called out one isn't it yeah. you know? <laughs> it's very true You're i want right. to see the peter watkins pre-production uh take on this you know oh the God. casting mm-hmm. like the sessions yeah know? and it's a good point marge to bring that up like I, I hadn't even like really thought of it in those terms i definitely thought about peter watkins while watching the second film but you know pointing it mm-hmm. out here like my god i i i can imagine a, a young peter watkins like sitting in this in this theater going like yep 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 that's it that's it, that's it. <laughs> for anybody that's interested in like watching the film i i think one of the only one of the for me one of the only things that that kind of like holds it back or, or sort of makes it a rel- relic if you will of like the past is it just like nobody remembers the fucking french revolution anymore and like it's like what we encountered uh in an earlier episode when we were watching the black book and how even at that point people were you know they probably were so much more familiar with the players of the french revolution and that watching it today you really do sort of need if you're not familiar with the French Revolution, it would be very, yeah, very helpful to have some sort of like annotation, like uh, along yeah, with I the agree. film, yeah. because there's so much happening. It's delivered in a very rapid, like a fever pitch of a verse as well, and song that is just like swirling around you. It's constantly flowing. There's very few like breaks in the action and the dialogue and you know the soliloquies and the monologues that I was saying like trying to make notes of like what the people are saying in certain moments I just gave up on it but I also think that that's a key part of the viewing experience Mm -hmm. you have to imagine that the film is designed in a way that you are in that audience watching it and having just all of this information sort of be thrown in your face like it's an assault from the inmates and the performers um, and the people that are sort of controlling the machinations of how it all works um, so by very by the, the film like by design is sort of encouraging that that chaos uh, as a viewing experience yeah and that's a good point because that's really I think where the influence over Peter Weiss and Peter Brook of, you know, someone like Artaud and his theater of cruelty, because that was, you know, the theater of cruelty really was meant to be this sort of like assault on the audience, a uh, sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, can we put our audience into sensory overload? And I think some people sort of misunderstand what like the theater of cruelty means. Like you hear these words like sadism and cruelty, and they, they, they take on a life of their own or they have different levels of meaning depending on the context. But, you know, the theater of cruelty wasn't about, like, cruelty. It was, a, it was a, a sort of more poetic way of describing the process of, yes, like, putting an audience into that particular state of feeling, I guess, on a certain level, yeah, like, lost in what is 
is transpiring and taking place yeah. around you to the point where you really are just sort of reacting. You know, you're you're hanging on by your fingernails for it. You know, I just want to say that I understood everything completely. Big guy over here. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess you know one of the things as I kind of joked where I would have loved to have seen a, a version of this film with the marquee doing the rehearsals with all of these inmates and getting them set up and going through their lines. You know, one of the things that immediately was so charming about our second film, um, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians was all of the modern dress rehearsals initially where we have all of these folks from Romania just sort of hanging out with all their gear uh, as they're going through and prepping for this big military reenactment and i feel like there was this clarity immediately for me where i was like this is going to be like a source of tension is the like political ideologies of these performers as a part of the mass going at odds with somewhat subversive production as designed by the director and it made me think of the great episode of peep show where mark it, it takes part in a historical reenactment but he's like playing a nazi with a, a co-worker who he then comes to realize is just simply a racist uh, mm -hmm. and like participates in the reenactments because he believes in the ideology of the Nazis and the moment I saw all these guys <laughs> like walking around with their rifles and which ones take it really seriously and like what they're hoping for like from these reenactments immediately I was like I see what is going to happen here like mm -hmm. there's going to be there's going to be a bit of tension and uh, there certainly is but yeah, I mean, we should probably then, you know, as we've sort of talked about the design of the production in Marasad, we should talk a little bit about the driving force behind the production of the show in Barbarians, which now I'm realizing, and I don't, is, is it ever given a name, like the name of their show? I don't think so. Or Birth of a Nation. It's Birth of a Nation, yeah. <laughs> Projected on the building behind them at the, at the big show she's such a that. she's such a troll it's awesome yeah i was gonna say which is also a troll because she talks about birth of a nation also at a certain point in the film yeah so well we should set up you know like what it's all about right essentially and why the this performance is subversive and is you know be, getting some pushback right so mariana has done her research right she knows everything about the subject she's covering, which is specifically the 1941 Odessa massacre, which they, they recreate. But more broadly, the, the performance is about Romania's complicity in the Holocaust and their own sort of, you know, actions in 1940-41 under Marshal Ion Antonescu, who out then allied with the Nazis and all this stuff, right? So for Mariana, it's about confronting the past, you know, and she brings it up. She's like, most Romanians think we like won World War II. Like we were allied with the Nazis, you mm -hmm. know? So... That's, you know, uh, a great tension in the film because still there's so many bad feelings towards Russia, towards communists, quote unquote, that you really see, yes, all these sort of reactionary attitudes displayed throughout the film in contrast to her extremely sort of like liberal or left wing, like, I've done all the research. Like, I know everything that happened about this. Like, fuck you. You know, you have no idea what you're talking about mm -hmm. or whatever. And she's constantly citing books and things she's read and learned and newsreels she's watched and 
we're treated to a lot of that stuff as well, which is mm-hmm. part of the the great thing about this film is we're like experiencing these archival materials as she's going through them and discovering them. So anyway, yeah, it's about the a nation's memory and and this horrible thing that happened. Like four hundred thousand Jews were exterminated at the order of Antonescu, mm-hmm. uh, and people are either in denial about it or they don't care, right? As the title refers to uh, a real line, a real thing that Antonescu said related to this specific incident. Like, he did not care. Uh, If they went down in history as barbarians, and it sort of seems like they didn't really go down in history at all, you know? I mean, as much as it's about, you know, her attempt to confront history, she's also confronting historiography so it's also mm-hmm. you know her her project is about the way history's been written as much as it is about historical events per se you know and that's what really struck me you know um i was like i was dusting off all my hayden white while i was watching the film you know like <laughs> the tropics of discourse and that sort of thing because you know that's so much of her criticism is the implotment of Romania's history, the editing that's been done in the story, you know, that like, and she's confronted by people who are like, I know history too. And and what about this? And she's like, yes, but you know, if you just go like six months earlier, it's a very different, it's a very different story. You know, everyone's sort of like, we were on the right side by the end of the war. And she's like, but what about the majority of the war? You know? So it's, it's as much for her about history as it is about, you know, the way history has been written by not just the Romanians, but, you know... Around the world, yeah. And I think the film is really clear about giving some concrete examples, too, of people embracing a historiography that she is, like, trying to subvert, like, in their everyday lives. I mean, it comes very late. It's, like, near the end of the film, just before the production. But I think one of, like, the key encounters for the film's philosophy and her philosophy is when she's talking to the deputy mayor and trying to be polite as they're about to do a show. And the deputy mayor mentions that this, like, minister of culture who's kind of trying to censor her production while also being a learned man himself. The deputy mayor mentions, like, oh, he just took me to a a reenactment of the Gettysburg battle um, and she's like oh those Americans like they they just love their history don't they and it's only 200 years old like uh, as compared to our 2000 and immediately we have our protagonist say like well well I mean what about the American Indians and then she goes oh that that's nothing so it's present in the people around her how strongly they stand by their own interpretation and understanding of history that she is trying to sort of undermine with her with her show and it is worth pointing out that you know i was talking about the people who like you wouldn't call them extras but they are the masses that are a part of her production her inner circle very much is on her wavelength there is a specifically one individual train who plays antonescu in the production who early on had one of my favorite gags in the film where he's wearing like one of those amazing yucky wolf shirts where like the entire shirt is like the face of a wolf with bright at the blue eyes <laughs> yeah exactly and he's doing an incredible impersonation of trump and it was a brief gag that typically i would find kind of annoying in the way it addresses the present moment but in this i was like oh this 
this is great. They're all like pretty goofy and of like good humor about everything while also are generally like thoughtful people that are like understanding what they're participating in as opposed to like the masses that they are directing throughout the the film. You know, one thing that did strike me too in a lot of those uh, moments where she's she's sort of butting heads, not just with the censors, but with her own cast <laughs> who are, you know, at times like disagreeing with her interpretation of history or whatever. It did strike me though, that I was like, man, this shows you a really big difference between the European education system and the American education system, because <laughs> yeah. as wrong as some of these people are in my view as well, uh, I'm like, at least they've done some reading. <laughs> at least they know something, you know, in America, like, you, you you wouldn't have the same kind of conversations, I think, unfolding, you know, no. like some of these people are actually like citing authors and citing texts and shit. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, at least even if I disagree with these fuckers, they've read some fucking books, you know, and so it's like that's one mark, at least for the European education system. You know, I also think that one of the most wonderful qualities of this film is the way that the production process is presented throughout like it is very much like they're putting on a production and then like the lulls in between participating uh, in that like high st stress environment or at least um, mentally exhausting environment mm -hmm. uh, because we get a lot of the day-to-day -day of the work that she's doing and the different team members she's working with but we also get plenty of sequences of her sort of hanging out at home and decompressing and you know sitting in the tub and reading those books that she is constantly citing throughout the production or there's a great scene of her hanging out with a lover that she has as they're just sitting around nude goofing off and then watching the the Romanian film The Mirror that they specify as not the not Tarkovsky, the Tarkovsky. Film. yeah <laughs> but she's it's just like this great moment of them having a laugh her just like nude watching tv and being like oh look at this hagiography like what a what a disaster this is yeah and i think too you know we should point out that similar to uh the marquis de sade's vision mariana's vision is also very stylized and and brechtian and kind of again this like confrontational style of performance rather than some sort of hagiography or, you know, bullshit propaganda or genocide denial or whatever. You really know what you're in for in this movie when she first addresses the, tr the troops, you know? And she's, like, looking over all her potential soldiers, right? And she makes a joke about, or not even a joke, she makes, like, a reference to how Wittgenstein carried a knapsack, like, for the rest of his life <laughs> because of his experiences in World War One, And and they're all just like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, it's right. just very like, oh, God, you know, like this, this tension is going to be, you know, unbearable. And so she like lines them all up and it's like, who wants to be a German? And like a quarter of the guys are like, yeah, yeah. yeah like raising, Excitedly. you know, hiling Hitler, like right away. Like, and I did love that there was one guy who was chosen to be a German soldier. And she was like, give us a C Kyle. And he's like, I'm not going to see Kyle. I can't, I'm going to, it'll give me laryngitis. I can't raise my voice that much. <laughs> so like you said, it's almost like this kind of waiting for Guffman esque kind of, you know, yes. like satire as well of like putting on a production with a bunch of amateurs. And that's really where the humor comes in. Like you're saying, Ryan, putting on a production is very challenging when you're also dealing with just a bunch of dumbass, like just <laughs> amateurs, which is what she has. And that's where so much of the humor really came in for me in those in those moments like you're describing, Marsh. When she sees the one guy with the huge beard, she goes, Karl Marx, 
first as tragedy, then as farce. And I think, again, it's like, you know, Judah's way of telling us, again, like, that's also what we're seeing here, this sort of, like, farcical approach to history that, through all these comic tensions, is actually more honest and truthful about the past through these, like, mediations and through these discussions and disagreements. Again, like, Mm -hmm. you know, not to just bring everything back to the greatest filmmaker of all time, Peter Watkins, like, I think this film shares so much of that spirit of, like, this discourse that you're seeing. It's not just the filmmaker presenting us, like, this horrible thing happened in Romania and stopping there. It's like okay, that's where we're starting from, right? Like, this is this thing that happened. Now let's, you know, bounce it around all these people and places and elements. The choice of, like, metatextual joke about Marx right there, you know, what you're describing, Marsh, I mean, that's, it's the Marxist dialectic in action, you know, that it's thesis and antithesis, right? And, and, and you've got to collide those two together through that conflict, through that collision, that's where history uh, really emerges, whatever that history is going to look like, you know? <laughs> and I think, like, so many people get it wrong in the sense that they think, you know, so many people, when they hear that, this idea, it's like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You take the best of both. That's not what the fucking synthesis is. It's not the best of both. It's whichever side ends up winning in both, you know, let's say specifically in this case, like the war or in the writing of the history of the war. That's the synthesis. Whoever gets to ultimately like control the narrative, like that's the true, uh, the true outcome of, of these discourses, these conversations. And in this film, like Watkins, you know, um, it, it's the, it's the difference between a representation and a presentation. You know, and she even says that, Mm -hmm. that, that this isn't a reenactment. Like she makes that clear when one of the guys is arguing with her. I love that. Yeah. One of the guys is arguing with her about like authenticity and realism in the reenactment. And Mm -hmm. she's just like, you know, she's, she, she goes through that whole impassioned thing where she then even like. Yeah. He's like a dude with, he's wearing a Popeye shirt and he's just like (laughs) reenactments mean extreme realism. Yeah. And she's like, you don't get your actual fucking brains blown out. Do you, you idiot? This movie, in many respects, in those moments, is like like a, a, a comedy of people just like popping in, saying something, and slamming a door and leaving, you know? That whole sequence is so incredible, too, because it's like a single shot that eventually is interrupted by a sudden rainstorm. And then everyone like has to get down and hide below the table that has like the little war game set up on display. Yeah. Great. Uh, way of tempering the flames that were like rising amidst all the different team members that was such Mm -hmm. like a clever setup that whole shot and just thinking of the fact of how long it goes on for and then that they had to employ a rain gag within the middle of it and what having to reset that up um just one of those things that's like practically uh like very impressive to watch and we should say all of this rehearsals happening at like this romanian war museum Mm -hmm. where they're you know it's very funny right they're like having all these arguments uh and preparing this this event amidst like a graveyard of vehicles yeah. from wars past and then some of which are even discussed you know uh even in relation to the 1989 revolution you know there's the burned armored car there's the burned car where they're like oh you know people think it wasn't violent like 
It was violent. Look at these bullet holes. <laughs> yeah. And then they tell the story of some guy getting his head cut off, some officer getting his head cut off and then placed on the hood of this exact car. <laughs> exactly, right? So, yeah, there's all these, like, tanks and armored vehicles around. Uh, and they also are going into this museum, and we're seeing cases and cases of old rifles yeah. and uh, old guns and portraits of military leaders past. Yeah, and and particularly, like, the way they move through those displays, Marsh, it's really brilliant um, camera work because... Like it, it, it presents those halls as a, as a labyrinth and we're sort of getting lost in them and the walls are just lined with, you know, rifles from the modern era going all the way back to, you know, muskets and some of the very first firearms, which again, I think is speaking to so much of, you know, what is of interest in this film that history isn't the past, that, you know, there wasn't simply World War II and it's this nice clean event that you can section off between 1939 and 1945, but that war is constant <laughs> in this age with, with people. Absolutely. And uh, I, we should also mention there's a band uh, yeah. that is part of the performance, <laughs> just as there's also a musical component to Marat Saad. There is one to this as well, as we're treated to them practicing and, you know, playing various national anthems and and all that stuff and some other like fun bits of music as well like i loved the in one of those lulls that you were sort of talking about ryan there's like a great bit they're all on a break and they're like sitting on a tank or something all the actors this and they is got like their, my favorite shot in yep. the movie yeah and they got they, they got their rifles and they are they're listening to what one guy says it's boney m you know Classic. and they all start like dancing to it you know <laughs> and they're all just sitting there with their rifles like held high, you know, in their Popeye t-shirts or whatever, like dancing. Bouncing, yeah. yeah, bouncing to Boney M on a tank. Again, like, that's that image right there is that. That's fucking humanity right there. That's right. us. Forever. Yeah, we're all just bouncing around right now thinking about that song and all those guys. So we should bring in at this point, you know, to flesh out this movie, you got to bring in Mr. Movila who is the sort of representative of the local government or liaison who, you know, is is some sort of fairly smart, artistic kind of guy, but is represents the, you know, the status quo and is this kind of like authority figure very similar to... Cumier, uh, kind of. Cumier. And so he sort of storms in about 45 minutes into the movie and what follows is a 20-minute-long conversation between him and Mariana. And he makes his entrance by joking to some of the people, yeah, just making sure you're not doing some ISIS beheading stuff uh, <laughs> as he bursts into, the, bursts into the scene and takes her aside and sort of grills her about this thing because he, he he's sort of like on the hook for it he talks about you know seeing her pitch and you know that her pitch is litigated you know as she's sort of preparing it as he grills her and questions her but he comes in and is sort of like 
why don't you tamper it down a little bit? You know, maybe this is a little too political. This is just bad vibes. You know, why don't you do some like, why don't you do some good vibes? Right. And it's interesting because at first he comes off, I think, one way. But as their conversation deepens, right, he comes off a slight, you know, a different way, I think, because it is revealed he's not an idiot. He's not just this done, you know, doddering bureaucrat. I think there is like a huge contradiction between his arrival and what we're like left with um, with him by the end of the film. It's yes. an interesting journey and way of presenting his character to us because i agree i think it's really key that his first line when he walks in is making a joke about like isis decapitations <laughs> he is then revealed through these extended conversations through his him returning that he is like a rather thoughtful person mm-hmm. yeah well he he's also in those conversations revealed to be you know maybe not as uh well read as mariana but but someone who does read and someone who is able to sort of, you know, in the moments where where she can sometimes like bully her uh, belligerent uh, crew with, you know, theoretical texts and quotations of great thinkers and references that are in some respects meant to go over their head, perhaps. He is able to go toe to toe with her at times, you know, with a very different view. Mm-hmm. I think in those conversations, as much as you might get upset, like respects him enough to like, have debate, you know, that it isn't purely just like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but they're actually in those, in those moments, like debating. That initial conversation sort of reaches a dead end because he does like present a a sort of dead end argument because when he's calling her to task for the history that she's referencing, she's like listing more than one source. And then his retort to that is like, well, you know, one guy write something and then all the other historians are referencing that one guy and it becomes this insular history and he uses a wheel as an example he points to like the the center where the axle would be and says like okay this is the historian and then he like dr- runs his finger across all the spokes and says like and this is just all the other ones who are mm-hmm. saying the same thing they're all just referring back to him and that is sort of where that conversation ends because like it is a good point but it also is a dead end because it, what do you expect her to say to that She's like, well, I have read multiple people, um, and if you're just saying that they're all referring to the same person, like, I don't understand how I could possibly provide evidence for anything to you, you know? Yeah, there's a phrase that's used, you know, that she she has in some of her arguments with her with her cast, but also with this guy. There's a there's a phrase that she uh, invokes, and and she's sort of she's resisting people's attempts at what she calls comparative trivialism, right? Where people are are looking at a moment here and saying, yes, but, oh, the communists, they, what about all the, the terrible things that the communists did? You know, you want to focus on this one sort of blip in our history, you know, this bad little moment, but, but what about Stalin, you know? And she says it, it's like, people always use these kinds of arguments. It's like, we shouldn't talk about the bad things that we did. Let's talk about the worst things that someone else did. And like, that is a very similar frustration and argument that's happening in Marassad, where it's like, but what about the revolutionary terror, right? It shouldn't have happened because look what they did with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And in Marassad, the specific line that's about comparative trivialism that Marassad says he says, you know, these are all these things you want to focus on. You want to focus on the, the the sort of messy parts of the revolution. And he says, okay, fine. You want to play that game? Mara says, what are a few looted mansions 
compared to all these looted lives, you know, the looted lives of the poor. It's the same thing mm-hmm. here, you know, this comparative trivialism. You know, you see it all the time where people are like, okay, yeah, sure. So, you know, we had this moment in World War II, Romania, where, you know, we, we contribute a little bit here, but Stalin killed 20 million or whatever. And she's like, it becomes this, like, this ledger, you know, where people are, are trying to measure all the particular, you know, numbers of atrocities and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, pick and choose and point fingers and say, well, this one was the really bad one, you know? So I think that's like kind of what's also going on here, you know, and that's why the guy's like, why are we focusing on this? It's not that bad. (laughs) Yeah, he's like positioning himself as this like expert on massacres, you know, he even goes the route of bringing up the Herrero. Yeah, he starts trying to invoke other more what he views as like, what about these other atrocities, which of course entirely missed the point. Because the point is, yes, but why all these atrocities then, you know, like as they're surrounded by tanks and rifles and guns from like the last 600 years of human history, you know, as he's sort of, yes, doing this like reductive and he like points it out. I mean, he does point out like what he calls the Darwinism of massacres, right, where he's like. Well, some survive history, some don't, you know? What's the point of shedding light on this one? Like, there's a, a million. And he says, uh, nobody wrote Nagasaki Monomore. And I like, that's one of the funniest fucking shit. Because he's like, you know, being patronizing to her, like, as a filmmaker. And, and that's, you know, a very funny part where, like, yeah, this guy's being an asshole. But also, like, he, he asks her, like, will this, will this performance stop future massacres? I mean, I mean, like this whole conversation again is about like controlling narratives, you know, like the writing of history. I think it's funny too. one of the differences between the ways the narratives are controlled, because with barbarians, it's all prior to the event occurring. And in Marasad, it's similar to like the type of thing you'd see in a courtroom where someone says something that the judge deems out of line and will say, like, I would like that struck from the record and the jury should should disregard that and there's this quality of like you can't just like disregard something you've heard like it's in your brain it's there and there's like there is that official quality to marasad where he keeps telling him to stop you know maybe the main impulse is that it doesn't spiral further out of control but with every line he's trying to censor there is this this understanding that like well we heard it you know they all heard it it's there it's been said and both i think sod and mariana i feel bad comparing (laughs) mariana to sod but like but both of them they take that on in their own ways you know of of being told what to do and being told what to cut and then forging ahead in that argument Right. He sort of offers her a compromise because there's a part in her show where after, you know, this like battle sequence, there's going to be a sequence of deportation and executions of the Jews, like this horrifying, horrifying scene. And so uh, he's like, why don't you just drop that part? You know, you can do everything else, but, you know, uh, and they haggle back and forth like, oh, we'll just show them. Uh, getting put on a train, but don't show them being executed, you know, and that's sort of the compromise. And he like amusingly appeals to like her commercial success with the project by saying like, <laughs> listen, Spielberg showed a German saving a ton of Jews with Schindler's <laughs> List and look at all the Oscars that guy's yeah. got. Like, don't you want to be like Steven? Well, one thing I guess, you know, Martian, we were just briefly talking about it. One thing I do want to talk about with this film was I, it's a beautiful looking film. It's a, 
it is I would not call it a film with a, a dynamic camera in the sense that I would label Marasad as having a very expressive and dynamic camera but this film is quite beautiful it's shot on 16 millimeter for the majority of the film and it has this like wonderful summer glow to it and it's always funny seeing something like a MacBook Air being filmed with like a 16 millimeter camera there's just something that's like funny about that to me especially since the macbook air was playing like old footage from uh lithuania that's actually that's a in terms of like you know the process of a production and the labor involved with production there there were a lot of scenes of prep that i really enjoyed and so that was specifically one of them she's First, like interacting with the sound designer and they're going through all the different sounds and they're talking about authenticity for the production. And the designer is presenting her with a bunch of different weapons and saying like which one is which. And Mariana is dead set that the noises of the weapons are from weapons that would have like been from the time like authenticity is her chief concern but then the sound designer keeps bringing up the fact like well you need to consider the expressive quality Mm -hmm. of the sound and the art and like we have a huge space we need to fill so we need to consider like that expressive element and then mariana's funny remark is that like well why don't we add in some screaming (laughs) and they go through their all the different sound bites of the screams and then start labeling them as like oh that's like a dracula scream or like oh that's a naughty boy (laughs) you know he's screaming in pleasure (laughs) (laughs) But it's little details like that that are really enjoyable to watch. And then immediately following that, she talks about this shot I was referring to of the the MacBook Air is that they don't have footage of the Odessa massacre. She's like, well, I've considered swapping it for this. And, And it's this footage from Lithuania. And I was like, what a radical departure. I mean, she never commits to using it, but like this this fear of keeping everything authentic with even the simplest thing as the sound effect of a gun. Uh, but then even to remotely consider using footage of people being murdered in an entirely different country, as much so as it, even though it relates. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is uh, Mariana's birthday party, where a bunch of the ca- you know the cast and crew are, are in her apartment that we've seen you know on and off throughout the film. And speaking of Ryan, sort of 16 millimeter visual representation, we now are looking at an old Philips TV that is playing mm-hmm. the very innocuous footage of Romanian soldiers kind of dancing and uh, prancing about in front of like artists and poets of the era. And they get into this conversation about, well, they don't look like they would do what, you know, you're saying they did. You're looking at an image, right? And you're projecting. These people are Romanian. Look at that guy's playing the cello. You want to tell me he just started executing Jews in Roma? Like, yes. Yeah. And she and she's like, yes, of course. Right. And then they get into like, yeah, phrenology. You know, it's like, no, some people look evil, you know, uh-huh. like these drunk guys or whatever. Yeah. And one of the women is even like, oh, the German soldiers are so handsome. Yeah. You know, they look so dashing in their uniforms marching you know so right and then yeah even within that drunken scene they're arguing like oh no guilt is individual not inherited you know uh and bringing up all this stuff as they're like hammered and mariana's uh, pilot uh lover boy interrupts the uh birthday party it's it's a it's a point that is like brought up 
in different ways several times throughout the film, which is, you know, aesthetics of fascism, the aesthetics of horrific moments in history, you know, because there's also another point where I think it's it's our boy, it's the minister of arts or whatever, it's that guy from that that office where he's just like, look at that guy. You see that guy there? You see the t-shirt he's wearing? He's got a Hugo Boss t-shirt on. You know who Hugo Boss is? You know what you know what Hugo Boss did? Designed the SS uniforms and everyone loved them, thought they were so sexy, you know? Well, I love when one of the uh, just sort of like rabble of the, the crew or cast at a certain point as they're debating, you know, there, there's a moment where it gets really heated with this one this one older guy and Mariana where they're like, you know, arguing about Antonescu and what he did and when and, and, and all this stuff. And as she's like, you know, talking about Antonescu and, you know, Antonescu fucking ex- exterminate all these people. Someone chimes in and goes, but he's on the wall in the church. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? So even again, this idea of like aesthetics and order and authority, like, right, orthodoxy and this like fascist leader. Yes, he's still, you know, uh, on the wall of a church or as we're treated to as well in the film, like certain buildings and statues that the film will linger on that are clearly, I don't understand specifically what they are. Yeah. Not knowing or whatever, but like they linger, which means they're from that era. They're from their remnants, you know, just as in, you know, our country, we know all about statues and their controversies, right? Obviously, Romania has a similar thing, like any place, any country that has commemorated anything. Uh, if it was once the state, <laughs> it, it, it's up, you know, until it isn't. And people sort of lose sight of the the bigger picture here, where, right, I mean, this idea of them saying, like, but he's on the wall of the church, right? It's this idea that, well, if they were so bad, why would they be there, right? If this guy was so bad... Why would somebody have built a statue to him? I don't understand what you're talking about here. It's just people entirely missing the point or not reading or not listening. Uh, And it's very specifically what she's attempting to attack with her show. As she says, she's trying to challenge preconceptions. There are so many examples of the people she's even working with having these preconceptions that she's trying to, you know, reframe so they can at least think of these things in a different way the the other like really intense scene when she's challenged by a member in the production is when like an older man shuffles over with another woman and they if they're like holding umbrellas to protect themselves from the sun and she's very you know kind of friendly and it's like oh like, how you guys holding up in the heat and they're like oh not too good but we're you know we'll, we're soldiering through but then this guy starts to go on about how he is extremely ill at ease that the Romani people are involved in the production. He specifically calls out that they're gypsies and that he he's like, I don't think like they should be involved with this at all. And she, you know, immediately realizes like, hey, buddy, you know, temper that racism a bit. Uh, you're coming off a little hot. And he's like, no, no, no. Like my best friend was <laughs> was Romani. Like I, you know, I, the, I we just feel, you know, like you're, you're not from the 
the countryside like we are, you don't understand why it's essential that they be kept separate. And it's just this moment of like explicit racism that she's like challenging him with. And it's, it's funny because then she, you know, when he asks why they're in it, she has like a really perplexing response, which is like, oh, well, Griffith cast white people to play black people in uh, Birth of a Nation, <laughs> which is like a super inadequate reply to what he's saying. Um, but yeah, it is like it's a it's a startling moment when it there is a lot of attention in the film drawn to sort of how the fact that a lot of the things that are being represented in her production have not evaporated from contemporary Romanian society and the masses. And then that sort of does also take the center stage in the grand finale of the film where we do see the production of the play and we are involved with the audience as they're watching this production. And as you were putting it, Ryan, once we see the production unfold is like ultimately a failure (laughs) beyond her imagination, you know, beyond her control. It all kind of blows up in her face, you know, all of her, all of her grand design and even her, you know, her at times like, you know, trolling her, her sort of like gleeful kind of like, wait till they get a load of this. It's all gonna, I'm gonna shove all this history in their face and they're gonna, they're gonna learn. They're gonna see once we, once we do the production and we do the production my way, they're going to get it. They're going to see. Yeah, there's this element of her struggling to, like, both artists in both of these films, Mariana and Saad, trying to wrestle some semblance of control over how the information is received by the people watching it. And it certainly, yeah, as you said, blows up um, very specifically in, in this production at the end. What happens to your words when they get spread around, right? And this idea that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the case of, of, the, of that film, right, like Charlotte, you know, obviously blames Marat for things uh, right that you know oh his writing inspired people to do massacres or whatever right this kind of idea that's developing even further throughout the film too about like the idea of the revolution is not even a static thing like it meant one thing to one person and then it got to another person and meant another thing and just spiraled until the revolution was this thing everyone projected onto right and And, claimed ownership of and claimed ownership of of and right so the similar thing is going on here where it's like everyone's trying to impress their mm-hmm. misinterpretation but there's something really interesting that happens when the film does shift into the production at the end there's like a an aesthetic shift so as we discussed this film is, is shot on 16 millimeter film throughout and has like a very specific look and right as the show's about to begin we transition into like very televisual digital cameras that are all set up to capture this live event that's unfolding in real time. Part of this naturally has to do with the fact that it's uh, extremely dark outside and it's like a live production that's being lit by stage light. So it it made sense that the it probably had to just like out of necessity be filmed digitally as opposed to on film. But I think there's something really key where that shift makes it all suddenly feel like a very real live event that you might be catching on TV and that all of these participants on the on the outsider that are watching the show are, are real, 
you know? Um, and then it does also kind of, it made it feel more like um, the type of national production you would see that was like sort of state-sponsored and put on TV. So it made those subversive elements stick out even more as it went on, I felt like. Uh, yeah, on 16 millimeter, you're not shooting a 30-minute live event for this film, like, <laughs> without, you know, having to do things that were probably beyond their means, right? But I do think that the way it's handled feels like very purposeful and it's embraced in an interesting way. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it gives a different feeling to the proceedings, right? It, it, it makes mm-hmm. them less cinematic. It makes them more televisual, digital, and, you know, modern in the same way that, you know, Public Enemies is, you know, the past on digital, like... There's something that works here, you know, certainly with with what the film is doing in that shift. And one other thing I want to bring up before we talk about the the production, the finale here is the the titular line in the film. I want to point out is delivered in a in a fourth wall break direct address by Trey. And he comes up to her like, what about the quote? And like, she's totally forgotten about the quote, which is the quote of the title of this film we're watching. And so he performs it. He's holding the Romanian flag and then he direct addresses the camera and uh, delivers the order uh, that was given by Antonescu. And he says, cu posibilitatea de purificare etnică și revizuire națională. Dacă este nevoie, să se tragă cu mitraliera. Îmi este indiferent dacă în istorie vom intra ca barbari. Show no mercy. Who knows when we will get freedom of action again for ethnic cleansing and national reform. Use machine guns if needed. I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. So I think that's key to, again then setting up what we're about to see. Because we don't literally know what's going to happen in the performance, which is kind of exciting. We've seen so much of the prep, but really don't have the total vision, you know, as it's building up for us. Uh, and then it all goes down. as The, the birth of a nation uh, in text is projected on the wall of this old building. And again, Mariana's uh, best laid plans... Uh, immediately, <laughs> like, just, just, just rear up and bite her in the ass when the Wehrmacht, the German army, the guys who are playing the German army, march out onto this, you know, public square and are met immediately <laughs> with a, a very raucous round of celebration and applause, you know? The people are, are cheering for the German soldiers. Yeah, and very like vocally booing the the Russians too. Oh, they're, yeah. they're a rowdy crowd uh, that are not afraid to to share how they feel about what they're watching. Yeah, and we're also treated to the deputy mayor giving like a very brief propaganda speech about peace <laughs> and entertainment <laughs> and how it love will cure our deepest wounds. And she actually quotes uh, a a famous Romanian poet 
who is then quoted in the performance as being like a complete anti-Semite and Nazi, uh, which is an incredible sort of bit of black humor as the deputy mayor is like watching this production. Um, so yeah, they bring out all three armies to various rounds of applause and booing for the communists as people are literally yelling like, yeah, fuck you communists, like <laughs> die or whatever. And <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's a pretty fun, fun performance. What did you guys think of uh, the proceedings? Oh yeah, I, I really liked it. I, I would have been quite taken by it had I been out in that crowd. I would have been pretty spooked at the way everyone was reacting and then felt like, I wanted to go home, but uh, the show itself was 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 a pretty accomplished show. Yeah, yeah, and it of course climaxes with uh, Mariana going for it. You know, That's after right. she was given an ultimatum uh, by you know this this guy representing the 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 Minister of Arts or Culture or whatever uh, that you know they absolutely should not and cannot and will not show the scenes of the massacre itself. Mariana, in conference with uh, Treyan, decide, you know what? Let's just say we won't and let's fucking do it. And they do during the show. They go for it. And they they show the murder of the Jews, the massacre uh, of Odessa in its expressive, uh, in the expressive way that she has decided to put it on, climaxing with this or culminating, I should say, with this, uh, the 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 people, you know, being being sort of stuffed into this this structure, this this bunkhouse that gets rolled onto the square and then set ablaze, and this thing really goes up. And I was, that's where I really too was like, man, yeah, this would have kicked ass seeing this, yeah, because that thing really does fucking. Just oh my God. burn down. Dude, it's like come and see. Like yeah. it's like fucking <laughs> <laughs> roaring. Yes. You know? Yes. And they're just ling and like the shots are just lingering on, on the flames, the flames yeah. for a very long time. And the and the, the the sound design that's been pumped in with the screams of those yeah. inside. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty it is pretty striking. I mean it and they go for it. And what what's great too is they then cut in the crowd and, you know, this, this, like the minister, the woman, you know, that the, you know, the actual, like, I guess, minister of culture, um, who's given that speech, you know, she's just sort of sitting there and just kind of like, Hmm, like taking it all in, doesn't really understand what's going on. Probably barely even paying attention, you know, but yeah. the dude, you know, who'd been working with Mariana, he does give this kind of like, she fucking did it. You know, like yeah. she, yeah, she, went, she fucking, I told her not to, and she did it, you know? <laughs> but yeah, there is this fear throughout the film from him, I think, like this implied fear that the audience is going to react um, really strongly against what she's representing, that there would be jeers and it would be this like controversy that they would be like, hey, like, how dare you like accuse Romania of these acts? And it, in a reversal, it goes the exact opposite of that, because when we have the orthodox priest raving about his anti-Semitic views and why, and like he explicitly just says, like why anti-Semitism is important, the crowd is cheering him on, you know, and not ironically. And then later on, there's a moment where when they're lining everybody up 
you know, for execution that one of the Jewish characters sprints and tries to escape in the crowd, and the crowd gleefully plays along of grabbing him and throwing him back at the captors. There's no hesitancy amongst any of that. You know, and in a way, again, that these two films, like, really um, sync up in, in a lot of what they're trying to say and do. Like, the results of both productions kind of... Uh, in certain respects, prove I think the 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 darker side of this like argument about humanity, right? Because in the case of Marasad, which you know we didn't really explain when we were were first talking about that film or focusing, eventually the Marquis de Sade's production does descend into utter chaos as the inmates mm-hmm. like more or less just revolt and just. Start yeah, tearing turn the place it into apart. A violent orgy. Yes, it really does descend into that, and and you know that that echoes what uh, you know Saad had been saying throughout the show and in his debate with Mara, you know, about like, hey, well, look, what I think is inside of humans isn't the urge to be progressive, isn't to to care for one another. Like deep down inside of all of us, if you do think we have you know, some, some sort of nature or human nature, it's in, it's inherently like cruel and base. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, you know, you kind of have, you know, this guy who'd been debating with Mariana and, and in essence, you know, I don't know if you want to say he's like proven right, but you know, Mariana's side, you know, this, this feeling that this, this production, this performance can, can elevate people, can teach them something. This guy is kind of like, well, all right, you know, like you may see people one way, but I see them very differently. And, and it, it, it's when his character really opened up for me because he does approach her after the show yes, he does. and they have this really powerful moment where she's of course mm-hmm. like, you must be upset. And he's like, no, I'm not upset, you know, like he's like, in fact, I kind of admire. Oh, he says, I like acts of artistic naughtiness. Exactly. You know, and so yeah. like, he was sort of like, yeah, fine, fucking go for it, you know. But in the end, he kind of wins because he's like, you you did it. And look what happened. You didn't get what you wanted. You didn't elevate anybody. Like, look, I was kind of right. I was trying to be. I was trying to play it your way. I was trying to play this game one way, but you went for it. And how did that work out for you? But you he know? was wrong because he thought the people wouldn't like it, but they liked it, but for the wrong reasons. So even then it's like muddied, like they're yeah. both wrong and right at the same time. And again, that's what this film is doing. Right. And so like in the end, of course, the, the cherry on top, he gives her a gift, you know, congratulates her on the performance. And it's of course a, a book about the, 1904 Namibia massacre of the Herero. <laughs> and he says, uh, maybe you can stage a show on it. <laughs> so God, yeah, it does. Yeah. It ends in this, it didn't go great, but there's still in their connection to people who have completely different views of the world. It's kind of like heartwarming that at the end, the two of them specifically are like, all right, you know, it's cool. Looking at both films, when you sort of walk away from them, there is this sense that, you know, in 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 both films, in slightly different ways, that they're, they're again, they're talking about like today, you know, and like... Yes, history, you know, we can we can attempt radical history and we can attempt to 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 resurrect the 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 corpse of of the past. Um, But when we do, you know, what we resurrect 
we we may not have control of you know we may not have it mm-hmm. in in the way that we we seek to regardless of of where we stand you know politically speaking you know that these things ultimately like take on lives of their own you know you can you can write something and and you can make a play or you can make a film and there's how we who create these things envision them and and maybe in fact like hope they'll be received but then there's the audience <laughs> there's the crowd there's the mob, whatever you want to call it, and they're going to take what they want from it. Yeah, and I think both films are, you know, they're playing with audiences within the film and the filmic audience and, you know, doing their best to, yeah, like, be direct. I mean, again, it's, I think, why both of these films have those, you know, Brechtian or distancing qualities is because they're trying to have this direct connection with the audience in a way that isn't obscured by, you know, the usual plots or representation or whatever, right? So both productions go down and uh, maybe not in the way that uh, <laughs> the the overseers were hoping, the producers were hoping, but uh, they, they do both go off. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they... the show went, the shows went on, I mean, at the very <laughs> least, Ryan, right? It, they certainly did. They certainly did. And they, they, they both reminded me of um, hectic moments when working, uh, you know, on an operations team, like the labor of production, uh, putting together something like this. Um, Marat Saad especially kind of communicated the tension that one feels when the live event itself is going on. And, you know, in that film, the behind the scenes is sort of the in front of the scenes, if, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, because I, you know, at first I was like, oh, this is just like a production. But then I'm like, no, because the behind the scenes quality is what's foregrounded. It's like calling into attention all of the performers and then like, you know, who they actually are and then like how they're being directed by the people throughout and how they make the guillotine sound. Yeah, the nuts and bolts of the production are very, very clear in, <laughs> in Marat Saad. But also, again, too, in the case of Marat Saad, that, that I think when you do finally finish watching it, you realize that, you know, the production, the real production, wasn't even necessarily maybe the play, uh, but, you know, what, what ultimately results from the play, you know, that the, the real production is that descent into to you know as you said marsh like an orgy of violence and mm-hmm. uh, oh, that's a sexual great assault yeah. yeah i mean it really that's the marquis perhaps grand design like the real production was what you were saying ryan like was Cumier getting sort of worked up and trying to control things and trying to keep them civilized and modern and yet because he didn't want the real production to go to go off without a hitch as it does yes. when it turns into mass chaos oh, that's a that's actually a, a great way of framing that film well as the old woman being carried off on a stretcher uh, at the end of <laughs> barbarian said if i knew i wouldn't have come <laughs> <laughs> I think we all share those reactions. Well, uh, these were the movies uh, we brought to the table. Uh, Sorry that, you know, we... We were told to bring, you know, movies about p- putting on productions, and we brought you movies about, 
you know, historical events and violence yeah, and stuff. That, that was the chaotic design of our production, Ryan, you know? So, Ryan, what would be then the films that, that, that you turn to uh, for, for glimpses into production life? So one of the first ones that came to my head is actually a film that, upon revisiting, I think sucks. But the one of the ones I thought of was Wayne's World 2, because there is a <laughs> lot of detail of them. I still think that the first Wayne's World is a like a legitimately great film and a portrait of the American Midwest. Um, and I think it's like beautiful and very funny, and it holds up. And Wayne's World 2 does not. Uh, and there was clearly not like a legitimate filmmaker at the helm, but it does have one of my favorite sequences where as they're setting up the stage for the production, they've got that British guy from Withnail and I who is discussing where the turrets will be placed uh, on the stage for, for crowd control. Um, and that's like a, a great gag of like suddenly realizing someone you have managing your team is, is actually just a lunatic. Um, but one film that I think is like a great, putting on a production film, uh, depending on how you read it, would be Zsa Zhonka's The World, which is mm. about uh, sort of like an amusement park that is representing all these various countries in the world. And it's very much about the day-to-day -day for the individuals that are working at this amusement park and putting on this representation of the world in the 21st century amidst all these patrons that are attending the the amusement park on a daily basis a very very beautiful film that's that's what i would i would recommend to everyone skip wayne's world to check out jajunka's the world but yeah so that 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 was uh, my pick this week that was a lot of fun marsh uh what what do you got for us next week i'm entering my my shameless promotion era okay because i watched a new movie uh over the weekend called dune <laughs> you might have heard of it and i was thinking you know a good way to get some clicks you know would be to name next week's episode dune <laughs> and so i want you to bring me movies with huge hills of sand i want sand <laughs> i want landscape i want dunes and I want them now got it as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone Fighting matter keeps on witness writing. Boy, as after the Bastille Valley still recalls the old jackal. Yeah!